Amen, amen. Go and have a seat. And uh, if you have a Bible, get your Bible out, turn to the book of Malachi. And if you're going, Malachi, where's that? Well, uh, probably the easiest way to get there is to go to the New Testament and then turn to the left. Uh, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, and as Joe just mentioned, uh, continuing in our Advent series, and we'll be in Malachi chapter 3 this morning. Uh, last week, we began uh, what will be a four-week, five-part series uh, around the, the, the Christmas time and the coming of Jesus. Last week, we talked about the promise of the Savior that is to come. And this week, looking at the purpose of the Savior, what exactly it is that the Savior would do uh, when He comes. And so let me just get right to the main idea here, right out of the gate. Here's where we're going. Here, we're going to spend the entirety of our time unpacking this statement in Malachi 3. Jesus comes as the Savior to purify His people and to judge sin. So that, that, that's where we're going. That's, what the, that's where the text is going to take us. We will spend the entirety of our time unpacking that statement right there, that Jesus comes as the Savior to purify His people and to judge sin. Now, just a couple of things with respect to the context in the book of Malachi, so we have at least some idea of what's going on here. Malachi is actually the last book chronologically uh, that details what's going on in the Old Testament. Uh, we believe First and Second Chronicles was actually written later, but that's talking about the time of the kings that happened hundred of years uh, prior to Malachi. This is actually the last spoken word from God to His people until Jesus shows up. And so in one sense, you're left with this hanging, this longing, this anticipation of what's to come. And then in another sense, you're going to go 400 years where there's just silence. Now the people in Malachi's day, uh, they had come out of exile. They're back in the land. They've rebuilt the temple, uh, but it is just a shell of its former self. Uh, further, the people have fallen back into a number of the behaviors and attitudes uh, that, that caused them to be exiled in the first place. And suffice to say, if you were to try to culminate or capture uh, the whole of where the nation of Israel is at at this point in time, there's a lot of disappointment and a lot of disillusionment with what's going on. So much so that what you see as you move through the book of Malachi, uh, really the, the people uh, in their response to God uh, in a number of different times and places are just really snarky and obnoxious. In fact, here, let's just read the text. Notice, in, I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 17. I tell you, why don't we stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? We don't do this every week, but I think from time to time it's good for us to do. Here we go, Malachi 2, verse 17. Here's what God says to His people. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Here's their snarkiness. But you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And so in response to those two snarky comments, God now speaks into that, starting in Malachi 3. And I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 5. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. 
then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And really what God is saying in all of that, all of those people hold this to be true, what he says next, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the Lord's word, loved ones. Amen? Amen. Why don't you go and have a seat? And I'm going to pray for our time and ask God to open our eyes uh, as we move through this very profound, but also very pointed and, and at points very harsh text. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we humble ourselves here uh, today. God, we recognize and realize uh, that as your people, um, God, we are submitted to you. God, part of our submission to you is to be submitted to your word, uh, not just the parts that we like, not just the parts that we prefer, but all of what you say. And so, God, we, we endeavor this morning to surrender ourselves to everything that you have for us. God, for the parts that we find encouraging or, or that we find helpful um, or that lift us up, we thank you for that. But God, we are equally submitted to the parts in this text that will just be hard for us, that will challenge us, that will convict us, that will push us in a variety of different ways. But God, not only for us, as is our custom, we pray for another church in the area. And God, this morning, I want to pray for Center City. And, and God, not only for Spencer Brown, but I know that Steve Letourneau, one of their elders, is preaching this morning. And I pray for Steve, just that as he's preaching, God, you would fill him with your spirit. You would give him the words uh, that he needs and that you would move and work in that body of believers. In the same way, Lord, in the same way that we would ask that you would move and work in and amongst us here today. So God, come and have your way. Come and do what only you can do and be glorified uh, in and through your people. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is The Savior's Purpose. It's the Savior's purpose. As we've already said, that Jesus comes as the Savior to purify His people and to judge sin. And so I want you to make note, um, but before, we're not going to spend much time in verse 17 of chapter 2, but I want to start here because it's part of what, what plays into where we're going. And so I want you to make note here, notice first of all the accusation that, that through the Lord comes, uh, or sorry, through Malachi from the Lord comes to the people. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Do you know you could weary God with your words? You know there are things that you say that God is repulsed by and he's sick of? It's true. I mean, that's what he said. You've wearied the Lord with your words. God's like, I don't want to hear that anymore. Now notice specifically what he says. Well, the people say, well, how have we wearied him? How is that true? Well, Malachi's like, let me give you two examples. You keep saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and that God delights in them. It's kind of a repulsive thought, isn't it? That we would look at something that's evil, that we would look at something that God would say, I have no pleasure, no delight. I, I, I would not approve that one bit. And yet as people, we would go, hey, God thinks that's good. Since there's zero bearing whatsoever in our culture or society with respect to this, let's just move on. Um, we do this all the time, don't we? There's all kinds of things that we'll say, hey, no, no, that's good out of fear of man or wanting approval or wanting people to like us. They, they, no, no, God's saying, I don't approve of that. I'm not for that. 
And then he goes on and he says that, that they're saying, where is the God of justice? Now, here's, these two questions really frame out the next five verses. In verses 1 through 4, God is going to respond to this first accusation or this first statement that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and that he delights in them. God's going to speak into that in verses 1 through 4. And then in verse 5, he's going to address this issue of the God of justice. There's an irony that the people are going, hey, God, why aren't you just? And it's God's patience, mercy, and forbearance that is withholding his judgment upon his people that is causing them to question his justice. So there's great irony in that. But I think it's worth our time to just take a moment and to evaluate in our own lives, would either of these accusations be true of you you or I? Could God say this about you or me? Uh, Is there something in my life that I'm approving or accommodating or participating with, whether it's with someone or something, that is explicitly wrong? Am I saying something to someone that God would say is evil and I'm saying, no, that's good? And that we would just evaluate in our own lives. Is this true of me? Am I wearying God with my words? Or am I like the people of Israel here? Am I questioning the justice of God? Am I essentially standing in God's place on the throne and determining whether or not God was right to act in the way that he acted or hasn't acted? I think it bears us pausing and considering these things in our life. And so the Savior's purpose, here we go, these questions launched that three things this morning uh, that I want us to see in Malachi 3. Here's the first, look at verse 1, it's that the Savior comes to his people. He says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Uh, Undoubtedly, that's a reference to John the Baptist there, uh, the forerunner of Christ. Uh, But then he moves instantly to Jesus right after that when he says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Savior comes to his people. God is coming to His people. And when you think about certainly this time of year and, and, and Jesus coming as a baby, that's what we remember. That's what we celebrate. We think about the Savior coming to His people. And when we think about this, there are two things in the text and two things inevitably, I think, when we think about this that come to our mind. And so let's just talk about them here for a moment. The first is this. It's God's initiation. When you think about the Savior coming to His people, you you think about God's initiation. We talked about this last week. We'll talk about it this week. We'll probably talk about it again next week because we need to be reminded of the fact that it's God who's initiating His saving work in the world and in and through His people. God is the one who is proactively, purposely, and intentionally drawing near to His people to accomplish His work. He's doing this. And and just so we're clear on this, not only are we not initiating, but God is initiating this, but but don't think or act like it's like, okay, well, God took the first step, and then we walk arm in arm the rest of the way. You know what the Bible describes you and I as? It tells us that with respect to this, that you and I were dead. I'm just curious, what, what do dead things or dead people do? They don't do anything, right? I mean, you're just, you're, you're dead. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, and you were dead, right? Not kind of dead, not sort of dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you're like, well, okay. That was those guys. I'm not like that. 
Well, that's not what Paul says because he goes on and says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? God is initiating this. Of course, the beauty of Ephesians 2 isn't that you get the first three verses. It's what you see in the next couple verses that are so beautiful. Right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. Right? God is coming to His people. God is initiating this. It's in God that you and I are given life. Here's my question for you. Just think about this for a moment. What would your life look like if God was waiting to intervene until you first went to Him? It's kind of a horrifying thought, isn't it? Let me take it a step further. What would the world look like if God was waiting for the whole of the world to initiate in drawing near to Him? I mean, you think it's bad now. That'd be a whole other level of madness. And so we thank God, we praise God that He initiated, that He has come to His people. And so we see God's initiation, but notice not only do we see His initiation, we see God's incarnation. God is going to come. That word incarnation simply means to take on flesh, that God is going to come to us as a man. And I think sometimes, you know, we we tend to talk about that a lot at this time of the year. And I think honestly, I, I know I'm guilty of this from time to time, but I think we become a little bit inoculated to the realities of all that, that, that really unfolds in this. I mean, think about this for a moment. Think about the, the transition that takes place. You have Jesus in heaven. In, in every, the, the, the totality of perfection. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He, he is surrounded by the constant and incessant chorus and worship and praise of the angels. And he's going to leave that to come to this? Like, I mean, at what point in time did Jesus go, yeah, this is a real fixer-upper here, right? I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But he, he's going to do that, right? He's going to take on flesh. He's going to walk away from that. And he's going to come. And think about this, right? He's going to be born of a woman. So he's going to make himself vulnerable as a baby. He's, he, he's going to live in the physical limitations of humanity. So the one who lacked nothing is suddenly going to find himself at times being hungry or thirsty. He's going to be sad or disappointed. His body is going to get sore and, and, and he's going to ache. He's going to mourn over things. I was thinking about Jesus as a baby. You know, we have a baby in our house and I was just thinking about, man, he left eternity and that was the manner and the form in which he showed up. And not to be crass, but just to kind of drive this home. I mean, think about this for a second. Like the Savior of the world, the one who lacked nothing is going to soil his diaper. I mean, that's insane. Now, okay, maybe he came out potty trained. It's entirely possible that just, that if anyone was going to do it, he'd be the one, right? And, okay, just like as a side note, I always feel bad for Jesus' siblings. Like, how would you like to live in that shadow? You know what I'm saying? Like, have the perfect older brother. Some of you think your siblings are perfect, or some of your siblings think they're perfect. But, I mean, just think about the shadow that Jesus casts as an older sibling. I mean, just Mary or Joseph being like, why can't you be like your older brother? Because I'm not the savior of the world, mom, that's why, right? I mean, just, but, but so, so here's the deal. I mean, he didn't come out potty trained, right? He lives in these physical limitations. He's going to suffer temptation and he's going to live in weakness. 
It's what Hebrews 4 tells us, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness. He's tempted in the same way that you and I are tempted. He just doesn't respond the same way, does he? Because he's without sin. And all of that, all of that, all of that drives us to the cross where Paul talks about that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what God endures to accomplish his purpose of purifying his people and judging sin. And it's good for us. It's good for us to be reminded of the cost. It's good for us to be reminded of the lengths to which Jesus has gone uh, in, in order to rescue his people. So when we say the Savior comes to his people, that's a loaded statement. There's a lot there that we need to thank God for his work. Notice this secondly, look at verse 2 through 4. Not only does the Savior come to his people, secondly, the Savior purifies his people. And and Malachi actually gives us two different illustrations to help us understand this. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. The Savior purifies His people, let's talk about these two illustrations here for just a moment, a refiner's fire. It's it's someone who works with metals, and and, and what they would do is in order to have a more pure metal is is you would heat this metal up to this insane temperature where it actually would become a liquid form, and all of the dross or the impurities or the alloys would rise to the top, and they'd skim that off, and what you're left with is a much more pure metal, a more pure product, which, which speaks to some of the refinement process that God wants to do in your life and in mine. And we're like, hey, I love the idea of the impurities being taken out. Don't really like that whole fire part. Okay, but you can't have one without the other. Or the fuller's soap. Okay, true confessions. How many people in here refer to their laundry as like the fuller's soap? Anyone in here? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? Uh, but that's what, that, that's what this is. It's a reference to a launderer. Now, what's interesting to note is, is how they would typically launder their clothes is um, very comparable to how they would, um, how they would uh, stomp grapes in a wine press. So they'd put their linens in there. They would add this bleach. Uh, this is the soap that he's referencing, this bleach-like substance to it. And they would literally stomp on the garments in order to remove the stains or the impurities out of them. Now, you might be sitting there and you go, well, Golly, I, I don't really love the fire. I don't love the idea of being stomped. Do you have a better uh, metaphor in the Bible? Well, if you want to go to the New Testament, um, the, the metaphor would be pruning. So there's no fire, there's no stomping, you just get your limbs cut off. So I'm not really sure that, that really any of those are without. Here's the point. When it comes to purification, it carries with it this connotation of intensity. It carries with it this sense of something that may in fact be painful. But in all of it, God is accomplishing his work and he's using something hard to purify his people. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad, loved ones. In fact, any purifying work will feel like that. And so Malachi gives us these these metaphors or these illustrations to help us understand a couple of things. First of all, this, make note of this, God's purification of his people. This is the purpose of the Savior. This is what he's going to do. He's going to purify, he's going to refine, he's going to make clean his people specifically from their sin. Now here's what we know about all of us. 
is that all of us are marred by sin. All of us are stained by sin. And it's not lost on us whether or not we want to admit it or the depths at which we're willing to admit that. We all know that there's issues inside of us, that we are far from perfect things. And so what the work of God is going to do is it's going to cleanse and purify us from the sin in our life. That God is going to remove the, the stain of impurity, of, 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 of the, the blemish of sin, whatever it is, from our lives. Now, listen to me, listen to me. Let's just be, can we just be unflinchingly honest and maybe just a little bit raw about this here for a moment? Because here's what I know. Here's what I know about humanity. Here's what I know about myself. And here's what I know about a number of you. You start talking about sin and blemish and issues and things inside of us. And what starts racing through your mind are all of the failures, all of the evil, all of the wickedness, all of the sinfulness in your life. And you start thinking, this is all that I see. Undoubtedly, this is all that God sees. And, and if we're just really honest with ourselves, some of us will come to this place and we'll go, I, I mean, I, I know in my mind that, that God could cleanse anyone from anything, but I just don't know that he could get this stain out of this person. So listen to me. When God says, I'm going to purify you, what is happening? Tell me. Okay, no, that, that was your chance to like launch into it right there, okay? When God says, I'm purifying you, what is he doing? He's purifying you. He's making you pure, like kind of, sort of, or is he going all the way with that? God doesn't half get out stains. God doesn't sort of remove the dross. He's an all-in type. Now, this is an amazing truth with massive implications. Let me try to illustrate this for a moment. When I was a teenager, um, I had this shirt, this white shirt that I had bought. And, and for, you know how it is. You just have certain clothes you love. And why, as a teenager, boy, I had a white shirt it was beyond me. Okay, but I had this white shirt. And, and I remember I just, like, big old ketchup stain right in the middle of that thing. Huge glob. And so washed it, washed it again, washed it again, couldn't get it out. Um, and you have to understand this. I, I like to say of my childhood, I grew up in the 1800s. And by that, I mean we didn't have a dryer. We didn't have a dishwasher. Um, my mom still heats her house by burning wood. Uh, and like, we, we don't live in Phoenix where you have to do that legitimately maybe one night a year. We lived in Flagstaff where it's cold six months out of the year. And, and so, so I had washed it multiple times and I'm just kind of dejected. And I come to my mom and she goes, just go hang it on the clothesline. I go, Mom, I don't need to get it dry. I want to get rid of the stain. She goes, no, go hang it on the clothesline. That will, that, that will take care of the stain. I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? And so, so she's just kind of arguing, not really explaining to me, but just telling me, go do this. As an obnoxious child, I'm being disobedient and not just doing what my mom is telling me. And so finally, out of spite, I take the thing out there and hang it up. And I'm thinking, I can't wait to bring this in in the, in the evening. And be like, great job, Mom. There's still a stain on it. And to my surprise, what happened when I went out there in the evening? It's gone. Who knew the sun bleaches out stains? I didn't, okay? But that's exactly what happened. And she began to tell me, listen, this is, she's like, I can't explain the science of this, but that, that's what happens when the sun hits that. It bleaches it. And it wasn't sort of gone. I mean, the thing was gone, which is not, all, not at all dissimilar to what God does with us, is it? Right, that when, when, when the penetrating light of God illuminates the stain of the sin within us, what no soap, what no detergent could cleanse, God is cleansing, listen, 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 in totality. 
Did you hear that? In totality. So here's, here's the massive implication. Here's the payoff on all of this. If you are here this morning, if you are here this morning and you have surrendered your life to Jesus, then here's what you have to know. That the Savior has cleansed you from all of your sin. Isn't that glorious? That the Savior has cleansed you from all of your sin. I don't care what your past was. I don't care how depraved you were. I don't care how dark it got. There is not some huge stain left behind if you are in Christ. It's gone. It's not like, well, he got part of it, or, or it, it's like faded. No, purged, cleansed, gone in its entirety. It's kind of like what the psalmist says, but as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. I mean, it's gone. Like, how do you chase down the east from the west? And don't get all obnoxious, be like, well, you just circumnavigate the world. No, I'm talking universe, man. Like, how do you get to the east heading west? You don't. You don't. Or think about what Paul tells Titus in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? Here it is. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Mm. God's love is a perfecting love. God's love is a purifying love. And in this, He is cleansing us from the sin within us. And the beauty of this is if you are in Christ, you don't have to live under that weight. You don't have that shadow cast over you. You don't carry that burden of like, well, you, Mike, you just don't know, don't care. I don't care how deep it was. I don't care how dark it was. It's covered. That's the point. So God, in his incredible work, is purifying his people. Notice what else we see here. Look at the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. God's people offer righteous worship. God's people offer righteous worship in a response to God's purifying work in our lives. The, the, the natural response is that we turn around and worship God. Look at what it says. Let me actually start at the beginning of verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And so God is purifying his people, and God's people are responding in righteous worship to the Lord. In fact, make note of two things. First of all, we bring worship. What you and I do in this, how we respond in this, is that we bring worship to the Lord. And you might be surprised to know you actually worship the Lord in a number of different forms and ways. Do you know that? Do you know that singing is not the only way that you and I worship the Lord? That, that, that is one of a number of ways that we worship the Lord. Let me just think about this service this morning. Think about the different ways that you and I, just because you're here doesn't mean you have worshiped the Lord in this manner or way, but that you could worship the Lord. Certainly in song, as we pray, that's a form of worship to the Lord. As we give to God's work, that's a form of worship to the Lord. This next one, some of you might really not like and be uncomfortable with, but listen, when you and I are hospitable with one another, so you know that moment that some of you love and others of you abhor right after announcements where we tell you to say hi to one another? 
Do you know that is worship to the Lord? Or it can be. It can be. And maybe for some of you who are like, I hate that time. Maybe what you need to tell yourself is, you know what? I, I don't have to like that time, but I am going to choose to worship during that time. And so I'm going to go be hospitable. I'm going to go meet someone. I'm going to go ask someone whether or not they're involved in discipleship. I'm going to ask someone if I can pray for them. I, whatever it is. You go, I'm going to worship the Lord. And, and man, God help us that we would understand that right now, undoubtedly, is worship to the Lord. When we sit under the proclamation of His Word and we respond to what God is saying to us, we worship Him. So don't read this and be like, okay, well, we're going to sing some songs, check. No, no, this is a lifestyle thing. This is the totality of who we are. Too often we think too narrowly about worship. It encompasses the whole of our life. So we bring worship, and then this is mind-boggling to me. God is pleased in that. Look at this, verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. When we come in this purified state, in the sense of thanking God for what He's done, God's like, I'm pleased in that. Isn't that crazy to think that you can please God? Anybody in here, if it's your spouse, feel free to keep your hand down just so you don't have to um, pay the price for this later. Any of you in here have someone in your family that's just really hard to buy a gift for? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, most of you are like, well, you just said don't raise your hand for my spouse, so I'm not going to put my hand up. Um, or some of you just have people who are easy to buy gifts for. But you ever try to buy a gift for someone that's really difficult? It's just like, oh, man. And, and they do this like, oh. And then they state what you got them. It's a blank. No thanks, no appreciation, just a statement, and you're like, yeah, they hate it. And that's so radically different than some, no way, I've been one. And you're like, okay, they like it. They're into this. They appreciate that. I think a lot of times we think of our response to God that he's kind of like, oh, yeah, you did that. And yet when we choose to worship him in the manner that he calls us to, it's much more like the latter. No way, I love this, this is great. Right, God is pleased in this. And it happens when we bring righteous worship to the Lord. So we look at this, right, the Savior's purpose is the Savior comes to his people, the Savior purifies his people, and then we've got to be honest about all of God's word, right? We don't get to pick and choose uh, the, the parts that we talk about and the parts that we don't talk about. This one's not as much fun, there's not as much warm fuzzies around this, but look at verse 5. The Savior judges those who do not fear God. I mean, look at what he says. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Kind of hoping he was going to go a different way with that, but that's not where he went, did he? Now, here's what I want you to make note of this. Is, is, is he goes on, he talks about being a swift witness against a number of different people. Sorcerers, adulterers, uh, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker, or the widow or the fatherless, and then those who thrust aside the sojourner, all of whom are really a summary of people who do not fear the Lord. But make note also of this, that those who fall under this judgment are a part of Israel. Just because you were part of Israel didn't make you right with God. So maybe a, a really easy application of that is just because you're sitting in church doesn't mean you're right with God. Just because you're a good person doesn't mean that you're right with God. The only way that you and I are right with God is that if we have surrendered our life to Jesus and by faith we trust in Him and Him alone for our salvation. That's what makes us right with God. And you're like, well, but I, I just, I don't know, man, judgment like... 
And then maybe you're even trying to think like, oh, is there something else in the Bible? Like, what is there? I don't want to talk. Oh, hey, hey, Jesus, Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. What are you going to do with that one, huh? Not talking about judgment there. He, he came to seek and to save the lost. Good question. Or good comment. Here's my follow-up question for you. Save them from what? Bad hair day? Poverty? Being uncomfortable? Fanny packs? Like, what's he saving them from? We, we all need to be saved from fanny packs, okay? Just true confessions. But what's he saving them from? It's not that. He is saving them from the wrath of God that is, that is, that is laid out, that is unleashed against sin. Now, in fairness, in fairness, judgment and salvation are really two sides of the same coin. But this is really the crux of the matter right here, isn't it? That judgment is what we're saved from. I mean, you can't be saved unless you're rescued from something. And so I think it's helpful for us if we try to go, let's see the big picture. Let's see the, the fullness of this thing. Because listen, in today's day and age, we are so averse. You say that word judgment, that's like a death word. But it, loved ones, that's a biblical word. That's a gospel word. That's an important word. That's, that, that's a word that God uses and he uses it often. So we have to talk about that. But maybe let me just step back for a moment and try to frame it in a much larger way. Hey, Dwayne or Morgan, can you put that picture up? So uh, just true confessions here. I, I'm like the least artistic person you'll ever meet. Um, I have no comprehension of art. I'm no good at art. Like any aspect of the arts, I'm terrible. You know why I sit in the front row? Because I don't want any of you to hear me singing, okay? But if I'm in another row, someone's going to hear me like, golly, he's terrible, okay? Because I am. I know sense of the art, but I know what that is. Anyone else know what that is? Sistine Chapel, creation of Adam, right? Now, that, 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 is, that is a part of a much larger picture. How many people have been in the Sistine Chapel? Raise your hand if you've been in the Sistine Chapel. Okay, um, so when Becky and I were living in Europe, we had the chance to do that. Like I just said, I'm not an art guy. I mean, there were other pieces of art we would walk by. I'd spend like two seconds and be like, why is it famous? It's lame. Moving on, okay? We got to the Sistine Chapel. We were there for close to an hour. Becky and one of my friends dragged me out. I didn't want to leave. And at one point in time, I, I, you, you germaphobes are going to freak out. I literally laid down on the floor. Because I'm like, you just can't capture all of it. So this next picture will do no justice, but put the other picture up. So like right in the very middle of that picture is a part of the hand. But all of these different scenes, and you can't even see the walls on this thing. It is amazing. But see, that first picture is a part of the second picture. But it's not the whole of the picture, is it? Right, there's a much larger portion to this. And so in that same manner, in that same way, let me try to help us frame out this whole idea of judgment, salvation, Savior's purpose. And I'm going to go to the book of Romans to do this. Now, in fairness, John Piper spent a decade preaching through the book of Romans, and I'm going to take the first eight chapters and try to do it in two minutes. Um, so we're going to miss a couple things, okay? Uh, but we're going to get the main idea. Ready? Here we go. Buckle up. We're going to go fast. Romans 1, here's what God tells us, that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. 
Okay, The judgment is necessary because sin has entered into the world. In chapter 2, we're told that God's judgment for sin is righteous and fair, that essentially whatever punishment God deems is righteous and fair because, uh, because that's what God's judgment is, is righteous and fair. And that becomes a real problem for us because in chapter 3, what we're told is that all of us are sinful. No one has sought after God. No one has chosen God. No one has lived righteously. So we now all fall under that wrath. And if you ended the book of Romans at chapter 3, verse 20, that would be the most depressing piece of work in all of human history. But thank God there's a number of chapters that come after that. In fact, starting in verse 21, God begins to lay out his solution to this. And his solution is to make Jesus the sacrifice that will take your place and in my place. In fact, one of the words that shows up towards the end of Romans chapter 3 is this theological word. It's called propitiation. And that, that, that word is, is a, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the fullness, to the end, and in totality, and God is pleased in that. That is what Jesus becomes for you and I. And so in that, we are justified by what Christ has done, not what we have done, and by faith in Him, we are saved. It's like, wow, this is great. You get to chapter 6, and we're told that we're dead to sin, and we're made alive to God, that the entire composition of who we are is now oriented and aligned towards Jesus. And you're like, I get it in my head, but I know what Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays look like, and I don't live that way. And Paul's right there with you because you get into chapter 7, and he's like, listen, we still live in a broken world, and we struggle uh, to, to, to live in a manner without sin. In fact, Paul says this. He says, I don't do what I want to do. I do the thing that I don't want to do. You're like, yeah, I know how that feels. And then he goes on later in chapter 7, and he says, wretched man that I am who will free me from this body of sin and death, which would be such an utterly dark moment if you didn't have the next verse where he says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. And then you get to the beginning of chapter eight and he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is beautiful and glorious. See, that's the big picture. Because God is a holy and righteous judge. He, he can't just turn away from sin. He can't, can't just walk away from that. i got to deal with that. And I understand that if I deal with that, i got to destroy all of humanity. But I love my kids, so I don't want to destroy all of humanity. Therefore, I will take my one and only son, my perfect son, and I will offer him as a sacrifice so as to reconcile humanity back to myself. And ultimately, we will live in, in eternal harmony with one another. That's glorious. But you don't get any of that if you want to try to skip over judgment. Because now, now, if you eliminate judgment, we got major issues with who God is because now he just tolerates wickedness and evil. And so the Savior judges those who do not fear God. That's what God's going to do. And ultimately, he does it out of love to reconcile those that he purifies. Now, I, I think we would do a disservice to not just take a moment to walk through these different groups in verse 5. And, and maybe let God even speak into our life a little bit. And so Malachi lists a number of these different groups that judgment is coming against. And the root issue for all of these people is that they don't fear God. But let's just take a moment and just walk through each of these and really ask questions of ourselves: Is any of this in me? Am I prone to any of this? Do I lean in this way in any way, shape, or form? Uh, do I need to be challenged in a particular manner? So here, here's what he says, then I will draw near to you for, swift judge, for judgment. I will be a swift witness against, and then what does he have? One, two, three, four, five, six different groups. Here we go. The first is this, against the sorcerers. Now, in its purest sense, you might be like, well, that's witchcraft. I don't do witchcraft. No, no, you got to see this in a broader sense. Maybe a better biblical term here would be idolatry. 
Not some stone statue either. I'm talking about a false savior. So when you look at your life, when you think of your life, is there anyone or anything who has taken Jesus' rightful place in your life? And by that I mean they become your source of hope, your source of joy, your source of security or identity or value or worth. Your passion and your love is tied up in that person or that thing in a way that should be reserved solely for Christ. You got anything like that in your life? God's coming to deal with that. Secondly, he says adulterers. Now again, in its purest form, an adulterer is someone who's having a sexual relationship with someone who's not their spouse. But really, again, in a broader sense, this is meant to encompass all forms of sexual sin. So whether it's adultery or fornication, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's uh, pornography, whether it's lust, whatever it is. In short, anything that's outside the bounds for what God has placed for us in, in, in the sexual ethic that he's created for his people. You might put it this way, or ask yourself this, do I have a greater concern for satisfying my sexual appetite than I do for honoring the Lord with my body and my sexuality? If so, you're in a camp that God's going to address. Thirdly, he talks about those who swear falsely. Literally, the word here is to perjure yourself. This is a false accusation, a false statement about God or about others. You ever gossiped? You ever embellished a story to make yourself look better or someone else look worse? You ever said something that's not entirely true? It's a part of this. It talks about those who oppress the hired worker and his wages. You're like, ha! I don't have any employees. I'm off the hook. Hold on, buddy. So in a specific sense is that you withhold, your, withhold wages from personal gain. In a broader sense, here's what he's getting at. If we're selfish, if we're stingy, or if we are hoarding for ourselves at the expense of caring for a brother or sister. It's the same thing. Talks about oppressing the widow and the fatherless. In short, this is a reference to taking advantage of those who have no advocate. Now, when it comes to social justice, we, I don't know why it is, but we tend to either make more of it or less of it than it actually is. And so let, let me just make this statement here that I think is helpful for us when we think about widows and, and those who are fatherless. First of all, social justice is not the gospel, okay? You can feed someone, you can clothe someone, you can give someone clean water, you can, you can help them get a job. You have not spared them from the wrath of God. But on the other side of that, while social justice is not the gospel, it is a manifestation that the gospel has actually taken root inside of me. So, so if, if you can sit there and go, well, you know, that's not uh, ultimate salvation. Yeah, I get that. But if you're silent, if you see someone who's oppressed or taken advantage of or being misused or abused or mistreated, when we're silent, when we turn a blind eye, when, when we say, hey, that's not my problem, you're complicit. You become part of the problem. We fail to speak up and advocate. And then finally, this last one. Those who thrust aside the sojourner. This is a hotly contested item in the last year in our country, isn't it? I think it's interesting that God actually established a means of provision for sojourners who lived in Israel. Now, I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers with what I'm going to say next, but let me say this first as a preface, because I think this is really important. This is not a political point. God is speaking. 
You with me? This is Malachi 3.5. Out of God's Word, politics always subjected to the truth of Scripture. We clear? Okay, so just so we're clear, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against those who thrust aside the sojourner. You can do whatever you want to do. You can think whatever you want to think about how the government should handle refugees and how the government should handle illegals. There's plenty of room inside the scriptures. Here's what you have no wiggle room on. To thrust aside the sojourner. God won't even let you go there. Here's what I found to be insanely grievous about this whole thing. It's not where we land on this thing politically. It's where followers of Christ can be so insanely cold and hard-hearted and calloused towards other men and women who are created in the same image of God that they were created in. That's the thing that blows my mind. I'm all for good politics. I'm all for good laws. I'm also all for caring for people, which apparently so is God on all sides of that. So let me just say this. Those that thrust aside the sojourners are those that God categorizes as people who do not fear him. Don't miss that. All of these, all of these, all of these, pointing to hearts that do not fear the Lord, but are far more concerned with themselves, their own agenda, their own personal gain, than caring for those around them. And in that, the Savior is coming to judge those who do not fear God. So the Savior's purpose is to come, to purify, and to judge. And like I said at the outset, maybe not the warm Christmas fuzzies that some of you were looking for, but this is what the Savior's come to do. Here's how I want to close. Is, is I, I want to sit in some of the heaviness, some of the weightiness of this for a moment and let us just engage and reflect. So, Dwayne, would you put that next screen up? Here are four questions. Four questions. Pastor Joe's going to come up in a minute. He's going to just uh, give us a little background music, but we're just going to sit and we're going to consider and reflect and meditate on these four things right here. In what ways do I need to be challenged in my thinking or in thinking about Jesus Christ coming on my behalf? In what ways do I need to thank God for his purifying work in my life? In what ways do I need to respond in worship to God's purifying work? And are there attitudes or behaviors in my life that I need to repent of? So let's just sit here. Why don't you come on up, Joe? Take the next couple of minutes. I'll pray for us, and then we'll close with a song.